As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and oh me, oh my... Look who it is. You're like a boss. You come along twice at once. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. <laughs> I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined by John McKenzie. You're like a alligator in the sense that I'm afraid of you. <laughs> that doesn't work as a bit. It doesn't, no. Push on though, push on. We, let's, let us push on because today you have actually done the recording. You've actually taken your finger out, put a little bit of effort in for the podcast and had an interview with someone quite interesting. Not only did I take my finger out, but I put it right on the pulse, John. <laughs> put it right on the pulse, the zeitgeist of the nation. The question that everyone in the nation is asking right now at a point that's maybe as far away as possible from any international major tournament. It's about the England team. And I was joined today by James Graham, who is the writer of Dear England, a play that's on in the West End in London at the moment. And is all about Gareth Southgate, the England team, and the cultural revolution which took place across the course of kind of three chaptered tournaments, starting in Russia 2018, ending in, in, in Qatar. Well, there's plenty we could say, but I think the most important thing for us to do now is to just go straight to that interview right now. I think we've got some things that we want to talk about after that, but let's, without further ado, get straight across to James Graham. James, can you tell me about the cultural revolution that took place under Gareth Southgate? Which it seems like a sort of big way of describing it, doesn't it? But that's that's what you're playing. No, but I think you're. I think you're right. I think obviously, I think the England football team and the 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 the, the whole culture around England football generally, like what is a World Cup? What is a tournament? Why does it matter to us every four years so much? What does it do to us, and how does it contribute to our national story, or what does it mean emotionally and philosophically? I think these are all like huge and big enough themes, like worthy for art, uh, plays, drama, storytelling. But I think, in particular, the, the what Gareth Southgate has done to the England football team over the past six years that goes above and beyond its results, its performance. What, uh, changing the character of an entire, not just even an, in, an institution in the form of the England football team, but also the character of the sport itself, like we as fans, how we interact with it, how we feel about these plays and about our performance and about our story. I think it's incredible. I think it's phenomenal. And I did, when I first, I don't know about you, but I felt like something was happening as early as 
2018. Like if you remember the the dire depths of 2016 and the uh, losing to Iceland, not qualifying, the one game of Sam Allardyce, it felt like for the nation that invented the sport, that was about as low as it could be. And that the journey out of that was going to be long and painful and difficult. And yet only two years later, the caretaker manager, Gareth Southgate, who was running the under-21s, had transformed the mm. entire feel of the team. Yes, he got us to the first semi-final, World Cup semi-final since 1990, 28 years later. Yes, he beat the penalty curse. But it was just that those vibes, and I wanted to understand what that was happening. Because I think most good sports stories, and there aren't many, let's be honest, great football films or, or plays, but most good sports narratives, it's not just about on the pitch. If anything, that's the least important thing. It's mm. about what happens off it. Mm. It's good. I mean, I think... Um, the, the cultural shift, the things that you're describing, the vibes, they're quite intangible. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's sort of appropriate that it's art that tries to explore that instead of journalism at times because yeah. it's they're, they're difficult to, to, to communicate. But that's what I think Dear England does very well. And it chronicles that story that you've just told. Will you pick out like some of the the milestones along the way, some of the moments that you think are important along that journey for Southgate. In the cultural story, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think you do yourself a disservice at The Athletic. I think you podcasts are also like the great arena to sort of dig deep into something and explore the nuances of it. But yeah, I would hope that the two, two and a half hours you get on stage and told through characters that you're meant to empathise with and, and have complexities with, that that is the, for me, that is the the joy of a story you can embrace all the paradoxes and the difficulties and, and, the, uh, and the meaty stuff of life um, so yeah in terms of Gareth's story well I mean obviously his, his appointment was a shock like it's great from a dramatic point of view um, no one expected he's like the underdog that no one ever expected to be running the England national team and he was a different kind of character he wasn't the traditional what you might consider the sports extrovert blokey bloke manager he's a, like a quiet introverted decent shy guy taking over the world's most impossible job at the lowest ebb, like how the hell is it going to survive? So dramatically, that I found that really satisfying. Mm. And then once I just started speaking to people, speaking to some of the psychologists and the people involved in the team, just understanding how early on, I mean, this a lot of this work, work had started unhelpfully for a play, so you have to neaten it a bit, but like this, a lot of this work had started a couple of years before under Dan Ashworth and Gareth when they were building the, what they called the England DNA. They were trying to understand what the real strengths and the real weaknesses of, of an England, specifically an England football team was. So that work, that introspection had already begun. Mm. And then Gareth just accelerated it. I think immediately... It, obviously, he, he inherited a younger team, a younger squad, one of the most uh, inexperienced teams um, that we'd ever had. You know, if you think Rooney was leaving, all the all the old guard, the golden generation were leaving, and so he took that opportunity to ask some questions that I don't think an England manager or even any international manager had ever asked. Obvious stuff, maybe on the surface, but he he asked basically like, "Who are we?" Yeah. Like they started doing. He asked the question, what is going wrong? There is this gaping hole in the middle of the sport, this huge anomaly that England, the inventors of the game, having won gloriously in 1966, had never won a second trophy. Why is that? And why do we struggle to... Why is the England shirt heavier? Why do we struggle to, to reset in the way that the Germans always reset and reboot when, they, when they're down? Mm. What is it about the England character, the psychology, the history... Um, and as, as you'll know, he, he discovered some things really early on, like the fact that 
these young lads didn't really know what it was to be England. They knew their club colours really distinctively. They knew the identity of the city or the uh, the community, the fans. Uh, and they, you know, they go there every week and they live there. What is it to be England? So they did things like workshops where they would put on a slideshow about English history mm. and English symbols and emblems and try to understand what are the three lions, what is that flag, the good side and the bad side of some of those national myths. Like they embraced racism really early on and asked the young black players, what, what is your relationship with this flag, the good and the bad, do you want to talk about it? And, you know, you just picture these these elite athletes and these millionaires sitting in their chairs going, what, what, like, why can't we just get training? What is this? But I think fundamentally Gareth and the team around him knew that if you have incredible players, incredible resources, it's got to be about mindset. It's got to be something happening upstairs in, in these young players when they put that, that shirt on. Mm. So, yeah, English questions. And then obviously the biggest one was psychology, bringing in psychologists, including in our play, uh, Pippa Grange who dealt with what she perceived to be the biggest problem in the England dressing room, which was fear. Mm. And the fact that English players had never, ever really spoken about how scary it is to go out there and represent your country. And is that, the question was just asked, is that one of the reasons why previous golden generations, like incredible athletes, Rooney, Lampard, Gerrard, why they, when they went out on the pitch, they were paralyzed they were inhibited they couldn't play freely they couldn't play bravely or with joy and excitement and invention they were they were stuck the, you know the age of the long ball and they're just like painful to watch why 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 so fear became a factor as well and, and just addressing that for these young men who were told that they always have to be strong and can never be weak addressing that fear in the dressing room mm. yeah it's a it's a fascinating sort of combination between personal issues that might impact them, fear being an example of that, societal ones talking about what it means to, to be English, what it means to be England or represent them. I want to pick up on that just for a moment. It's, it's something that was going to bring us to talk about later, but we're here now. Why not? Uh, the England flag. Yeah. Right? We have like, a lot of um, overseas listeners to this podcast who, when it struck John and I when we were talking about the preparation, might not know how people in the UK yeah. or people in England feel about the, the England flag. Obviously, there is a United Kingdom flag, which is the, what do they call it? The um, Union Jack. The Union Jack, yeah. thank you. And then there's the St. George's Cross, which uh, just represents England, yeah. which is a flag here that I feel, and maybe you'll, you'll have a different perspective, I feel is okay to have during a football tournament, and then at no other time is it okay to have. If I drive past a home and I see someone hanging a St. George's flag out of the window and there isn't any football on, my instinct is to feel as though there's a problem with that. And that might not be true. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Um, how do you, how do you <laughs> when you're a footballer or you're a group of footballers together, how do you start thinking about that as it relates to football, that intersection, when yeah. there's a broader sort of societal question at, at place as well? Yeah, well, I, I have the same reaction that, that you do if it's outside of a football tournament where the permission you're given is because you're a fan and you want your nation's team to do well. If it's not that, then obviously it becomes a political symbol. It's about a particular m movement or, or, or an expression. And I think we can like project unfairly negatively onto that, that stuff as well. I mean, I come from like a, a working class mining background in Nottingham where you would see the flag sort of raised mm. and, 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 and unproblematically. It would just be an expression of your national identity. And I think for international viewers, it is one of the factors in this is a sort of schizophrenic 
identity problem that we have as a, as a nation because we are are we British are we English uh, that we have so many different names every time you see a world leader try to say who we are the Brits the United Kingdom Great Britain the British Isles England's got like who are we we, we have all these overlapping and competing identities in a way that I think makes it harder to clearly identify I imagine if you're German or if you're American um, or if you're Colombian and I guess also tied into this, which goes back to your question about culture, is that there has been uh, a problem in the English national game um, and uniquely with the English national game with violence, with hooliganism that was spiralling out of control in the late 90s and the early noughties. And nobody really wanted to ask the question or, or were frightened of the answer about why. Like, why was that? Us. Why was it always England fans kicking off in European town centres, smashing cafes and throwing chairs? Mm. What about that national character? About that resentment? I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's true that most of those were not remotely football fans. That was something else, but it was there. And so I think probably for some people that the associations with that flag for that reason is difficult because it can be weaponised. Mm. And I think even the national conversations we're happening now you know, the current Labour Party opposition trying to get into power are trying to find a language that I think Gareth Southgate pretty much nailed about uncomplicated patriotism, which which you can be proud and safe and feel included in celebrating. Mm. And I think the only way, you, I'm, 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 I'm a guessing this stuff, but I think one of the ways they did that was by naming it, by not, by in the room when you've got lots of, you know, the most diverse uh, racially diverse team of players that we've ever had to just point at it in the room and go what's your relationship to this um, Raheem Sterling is it different to Phil Foden's and there's no wrong answer but can we just name it and then talk about it so that you can walk out onto the field seeing that your fans wave that flag and feel like you are in dialogue with it and that you've expressed something mm. I think that's true I also think there's something interesting that happens along this journey when that the idea of that cultural revolution and the good vibes that Southgate did manage to create, I felt I felt as though they, for me, they reached a peak during what was supposed to be Euro 2020. Yeah. Euro 20 ended up being in 2021. England, of course, reached the final. And then you, you have the relationship between that cultural revolution and the way that people feel about it and results. Yeah. And that's what makes it an interesting dichotomy because it, it, it essentially the foundation of all of this is it's a sporting competition yeah. and there is a sporting performance related to the outcome. So after, and whilst like, I think it's it's fair to say, as we have done many times since, there were a minority of people who behaved like extremely poorly yeah. after, after the final, there was an awful lot of uh, racial hatred and abuse directed towards yeah. a small number of players who, who missed penalties. And it felt like that, popped a bit of a balloon of, the, of those good vibes. And yeah. also it felt like, even though it's hard um, to equate the two for the, for the same reason, it felt like it was related to sporting performance, or at least that was the kind of excuse given for it. That was definitely an excuse. And obviously, I mean, yes, I remember, oh God, that moment that, that it's funny you say that actually, because like normally you'd look back at England getting to the final of a major tournament, which hadn't happened for 55 years. Yeah. And it was back at Wembley. Like the stars were aligning. The story was perfect. And uh, uh, but my memory of that final is is queasy because of that reason. And if you remember, there was sort of that pulsating um, 
outlet that was happening because we'd been in lockdown for so long as well. So people were being let out onto the streets. It felt felt a bit untamed. And a it bit was wild. awful in London that day. Yeah, we, was, we were yeah. working here, and before the game began, I think we got here six hours before the right. game even started. Yeah. It was already uncomfortable on, yeah. on the on the commute, and the, I, we had the feeling as though. Uh, it was going to be a weird day. <laughs> yeah, know, like the result yeah, would, yeah. is going to impact how that atmosphere bubbles. I think you're right. I mean, the, the people I've spoken to, were you, were you at Wembley at that time? No, right? we, we just came to the yeah. office of miles away. But you know. yeah, but I remember I speaking to, um, I interviewed as many people as I could for the play and speaking to the sports journalists who were in the stadium. Mm. They said they've never felt anything like it before the game even started. Like there was no sense of, oh, whatever the result, it doesn't matter. We've, we know we've, the journey is, is wonderful. We're, we're, we're slaying dragons and demons. I don't know how if that at all translates into the feeling from the, for the players if they sensed that, but I'm sure it didn't help. But that you know we remember the people jumping over the turnstiles and they were not just at capacity but over capacity, and there's something throbbing about that, there's something nerve-wracking like the Coliseum. And then yeah, the the absolutely um, in in a complicated cultural time for every nation, but particularly in the West with the culture wars going on, it uh, the, the the fatalistic and unfortunate. Um, outcome that there were five players who took penalty, penalty at the end the two white players scored and the three black players didn't um, and then the reaction was the reaction and, and, and we, we in the play we decided we were going to address that head on and uh, and there's two sides to that though isn't there there is there is undoubtedly and people try to make excuses and say oh all the trolling is coming from outside of the country we can tell them that that wasn't true either it was coming from people in England to their fellow countrymen but then counter to that, without like dismissing or being sentimental, mm-hmm. there was a really positive reaction, one that massively outweighed that one, which was people coming together to say, what are you doing? Absolutely not. You know, the mural of Marcus Rashford being uh, repaired. And actually the most positive story for me in terms of a character point of view, in terms of the characters who are in the play, Gareth and the plays, and we have Saka on stage and Rashford, um, how, they re- how they reacted to losing a, to missing a penalty um was so astonishing in terms of its sort of emotional intelligence and its calmness in a way that almost proved the benefits of the southgate cultural revolution over the course of those years because as we remember and very um neatly for me as a dramatist the southgate story is beautifully shakespearean and perfect you've got this poor kid who misses that penalty in 1996 hands on his hips head down he's worried he's going to be defined about by this forever mm. 20 years later, he's the manager of England, who, who knew? And it's him who breaks the penalty curse against Colombia, the first time England have ever won a penalty shootout, because he did the work, because he took that trauma and took that and in bravely decided to investigate why England were the statistically worst in the world at penalties. He did that work, he broke that curse, and then... Two years later, of course, of course. I mean, of course, it was going to come down to penalties in the final in Wembley because that's what the gods had decided. And that we've got to go through that torment every time. And this time, instead of winning, they miss. And the fact that it was him who could be there for them and all those incredibly moving uh, images of Gareth like immediately sort of doing what no one ever did to him, which was go to them, grab them by the neck, pull them in hug them, hold them, make sure they're okay, and then take them through the work of how we're going to respond. Not pretend it didn't happen, not keep your eyes down in the dressing room, not say goodbye at the end of the evening, see you, see you next training camp, but like do the work. Mm. What do you need? How do you want to talk about this? And they all wrote letters, well, social media posts, but they wrote letters to the nation in the way that Gareth had done at the beginning of that tournament to go, that wasn't great, that hurt, da 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 And 
I think that's almost the most important thing to, to, to be in dialogue with the fans about what it feels like when these things happen so that we can feel part of a collective. Mm. Let's talk about Gareth Southgate as a protagonist then because he's he's kind of, he's an interesting guy. I see yeah. all the things that you, you are saying about him. I see, maybe I'm wrong, but I see that you love him as you're talking <laughs> yeah. about him. I, look, I've got my... Here we go. Because, yeah, uh, like, obviously I've got my bias and as we're probably about to talk about, not everybody shares those views. And that is the, that is the problem of the impossible job. I mean, not, not specifically, but, like, what I'm interested in asking you about is um, you have, you've written, uh, you know, a theatrical, uh, a drama narrative around real-life events with real people who still occupy those roles and are, have evolved beyond. So the, the two questions come out of this. The first is, uh, has anything happened since that would cause you to write the play in any differently? And the second would be, is it important for you to love your protagonist? And when you, when you pick out the themes that most appeal to you and feel most dramatic to you, do you now find it more difficult to assess who Gareth Southgate is as a person in real life versus like the character of Gareth Southgate, which is very close, but the one that, that you know because you've spent most time with that character having written the play? Oh, yeah, like my neutrality on him is completely shot. It's like gone. When, when I'm <laughs> yeah. sat there in the pub like everyone else, having a different experience because I feel like sure. I've gone on a journey with him. Leave Gareth alone. And leave him yeah. alone. Like, yeah. yeah, you don't understand. I understand. I've been in his head. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think anything's changed. I mean, obviously, we are hurtling towards Germany next summer and yeah. what feels like, again, everything is aligned for that to be the perfect end to his story if you can finally bring home that silverware and it being Germany and all that stuff all that history that's so loaded so that might change it but actually ultimately without giving I don't think it's a spoiler to say in my play we end in Qatar the three tournaments beginning middle and end Russia uh, England and then uh, the Euros and then um, uh, Qatar and spoiler we don't win the World Cup in Qatar so so actually my play I think is actually sort of protected from events slightly because Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I sat there watching that quarterfinal waiting for the for the ending to emerge and was devastated when the ending I thought wasn't going to come I'd already started writing it we'd already programmed it yeah obviously actually in reality it was a perfect ending because there you've got um, you know in the father-son metaphor mentor student Gareth and Harry Kane the fact that it's Harry Kane who missed his penalty was the reason we crashed out uh, and again the the healing I guess that Gareth could give Harry, so that Harry would be okay in the way that Gareth and previous people haven't been okay, felt like, theatrically at least, I can feel the eyes rolling of people who just go, look, just win a World Cup and none of that matters. But, but it know, ties the knot of the story. Right? It ties the knot of the story. Yeah. And it, it, it says at least, if we haven't yet learned to win, we've learned how to lose, at least at least lose better, lose better than we did in, uh, in Wembley in the Euros. So that, that kind, that neat, kind of confuses me, though, because I uh, not what you're, what you're saying makes sense, but um, the reality of it confuses me. Because having seen the play, I can't now tell whether it's a life imitating art, art imitating life situation. Where I, I also feel as though the narrative is thematically like looped closed, and I can't remember whether I felt like that before I watched Dear England yeah. or not, or if it was after what happened in in Qatar. Given that all of the plans that the England team were making and Gareth Southgate were making were focused, you know, there was a bit of a North Star. It was Qatar. Yeah, there was a clock counting down. Does, does it feel like it's still, is the story still ongoing? Maybe this is a new one now? But I think if I'm going to be the pretentious playwright for a second, I think it's now do. a metaphor. Yeah, thank you for that permission. I think it's like a metaphor. It's now a metaphor. It's like an allegory. So no matter what happens going forward, England may win, England will lose. We may lose faith again. There may be really bad times. 
even though I, I am um, clearly affected by and attracted to a look at the kind of English men that have changed the character to be less aggressive and traditionally masculine and, and, and um, stoic to be something softer and kinder and more decent. And when you look at Harry Kane and co, obviously I'm attracted to that and I, I want to preserve that, but that might not last forever. The character might change and a different kind of England may come along and that might be brilliant and that, that might succeed. It almost doesn't matter. Like this, this story was the story. It did Gareth, happen. Gareth did this. Yeah. The team did change. And I'm, as you said, and I, people don't, I think, connect this enough. Um, the, I, when I was at St. George's Park doing some research with, with Gareth and other people, what was referred to affectionately as the warm and fuzzy stuff. So the culture stuff, basically. How are you feeling? And do you want to talk about it? Mm. And can we do a workshop about English history? That was always ruthlessly guided towards winning. And it was never anything but. And Gareth yeah. was very clear about that. Like he knows for all that he writes so beautifully about wanting to provide happy memories for the nation, he knows the happiest memory he can give the nation will be winning a tournament. And if that doesn't happen next year, that will be, for him, a terminally unscratched itch that he will, I think, will really trouble him for the rest of his life. And I, I think we will all feel that, that was a waste opportunity. So the culture stuff isn't for the sake of it, and it's not some woolly, woke, liberal, oh, this will make us feel good. It's, it's razor-focused on winning. Yeah. And... Which feels a little uncomfortable to me. Because... Because I think if it's predicated on, like, if its basis is in order to support sporting competitive performance, then it feels shallow. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's... I think two things can be true, can't they? It, that the, the purpose of elite sport is to get the medal or the trophy. But that doesn't mean... Yeah. In is all it, of is your, it, though? Like, you said before, well, also, like, the happiest memory that the nation could get is winning a World Cup, but... Isn't it like, isn't, I don't, I'm yeah. not sure if that's true for me. Like, I feel like what you described about what happened to the England team and the way that everybody felt about it after decades of yeah. feeling very differently, that felt like the best possible Look, outcome. I am here with you, and that's why I wrote the play. Like, that is, sure. that is one of the things I wanted to um, explore, like the curiosity of, of how, how we become happier and, and, and continue to have joy in the thing that we pretend that we profess that we love. Yeah. And yet, it's so constantly miserable about it because of our our approach to it. Like, unless we win, we will never yeah. be happy. So, of course, we're never going to be happy. It's tied to an arbitrary thing. I mean, it of makes course, me think yeah. of like, um, you know, myself, John, everyone else that works here. Uh, we constantly try to find ways of talking about anything except football, right. <laughs> but tying it to football because yeah. football is our tether, right? Yeah, and we understand right. that that that's it's also a very useful means of of looking at the rest of the world, which I'm going to ask you about shortly. Yeah, but. In this instance, it feels just arbitrary to tie the success or lack thereof of that cultural revolution to... No, I totally agree, and I, I, I don't want to oversimplify that. I, I, think, I think he imagines and knows that, that winning would just seal the bow on that, that lovely present. Yeah. It, it, but it wasn't as cynical as I made it sound like he... Because you, you can tell who Gareth is, everyone can, that he sure. is an empathetic guy who really really feels his players and it, I, I, probably that's just the environment he's in though, yeah right? like exactly the, con the yeah. context is it's if you can do this yeah if you if it's about performance absolutely if and you, I, it's about winning and he i don't think there's any part of him that would if he had two buttons like destroy the mental health of your team sure to win or come second but never be happy he'd pick the second button without a doubt so so i think he has to try i think he has tried to take the team and try to take us as fans along a journey that goes, one day we may win. And look, the most semi-final, final, quarter-final, that is the string of successive hits that no one else has had apart from him. Mm -hmm. 
he is trying to teach us, I would argue, unlike our politicians, uh, that short-termism is only going to make you miserable having a long-term plan. And then, for God's sake, guys, like try to enjoy the journey, yeah. not just wait for the destination. That is part of the English disease that, that maybe other nations have it, but unless we learn to fail well and go, God, made it to a final, absolutely brilliant, we are never going to be happy. Yeah. That's the big problem with football, I think, is, you know, the way that uh, England fans, maybe in the majority, maybe not, it's not fair for me to say, but the way that I feel as though England fans feel about Gareth Southgate now doesn't reflect the reality of the results that yeah. came from that sporting performance. Yeah. Because like you say, it was the, it's the best run I mean, it's presumably it's the best consecutive run. Yeah, no one's ever. Ever, no one has done that before. No. Not, not Alf Ramsey, not anybody. And then I don't know. Pick a random. Uh, in 2021, which was the year of the delayed Euros, I think uh, he broke three records. We, we won the most matches, scored the most goals and had the most clean sheets that mm. year under his tenureship than any year in the history of the England football team, which, and by the I way, is like 150 years. People and yet, feel ambivalent about it, Of course, it, yeah. They? So, but it's, yeah, it's I just, totally agree. And it's it, just stupid, James. I, I, it is stupid. I can't tell whether that's me and my love of my protagonist mm. and, and my affiliation with the kind of character that Gareth is. Or just, I, I, I sort of pull my hair out a little bit with people. Because again, it ruins their, it ruins their joy. Like, I, I've got my joy. I, I'm really enjoying this journey. I think it's been the most remarkable six, seven years in the life of my national team. I, say, I feel sad for people who, who can't feel that joy and only feel resentment and bitterness. And look, hey, every, everyone's England team it belongs to them and they're entitled to their opinion. And my God, will they have them? And I get it. I mean, Gareth certainly isn't, perfect is he tactically and people worry he's too defensive people not uh, all the, the the classic uh, anyone could win with this team it would be a sure. crime not to win with this team how could you not win with this team if you come second you failed it's the same old stuff um, no England manager will ever be able to satisfy everybody but I do think there is for Gareth a, stri- a, a more sharper distinction between what feels like reality culture change plus historic results albeit not the win compared with his perception and some of the fans, no matter whenever he drops the baton once, mm-hmm. like the uh, Nations League calling for him to go. And <laughs> do we ever think that maybe that's one of the problems with the England performance as well, sure. that our responsibility as fans is to not always ask for managers to resign at mm. the lowest ebb rather than support them and build them up? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm interested in the uh, something you said before. You, you referenced uh, Gareth Southgate. Or f- for now, if we leave Gareth Southgate as a person out of it and just think about the role of the England football team manager versus what politicians are and, and aren't doing to take the country along with them, or at least forgetting about like the practical implementation of any of, of their ideas, creating visions that uh, make people want to, to follow them. Football seems like uh, an incredible tool to use for 
politics, and we can see that happening all, all around the all around the world. Mostly, it feels like in quite negative ways, yeah. which is disappointing. Stick to football, stick to football. But w- why is it? Do you think that the England manager has as much, or maybe not more, perhaps in the in the case of Gareth Southgate, as much influence on the culture of the entire country as like all of the politicians? put together it yeah. seems like a kind of odd balance doesn't it I think that's such a good question and don't necessarily have the answer except to say that I think I think you're right to like identify that in public life you know you have your prime minister you know you have the, the archbishop of Canterbury you have faith leaders politicians uh, public figures and I'd say top top five of that is the England manager mm. that we we rightly or wrongly fairly or unfairly project onto that role a desire for them to represent values yeah. somehow. Um, especially, I guess, because of the relationship with, uh, not, uh, I guess, uh, at that point, uh, not a slightly older sports, sportsman states-like figure who is guiding young lads out there onto sure. the field in like an apparent father way. We go, your values will be these boys' values. So, so it's really important. Your character is really important because you're representing England. And... But I mean, obviously, that, like you say, that is a that is a, a difficult relationship because politics is fraught and ideologies mix, and the England team should be for everybody. Everyone should be included in it. And if if you you, you can't project too exclusively your politics onto how you behave, and we've seen those tensions with the choice to take the knee, mm-hmm. and and some people disagree with that. And <clears throat> at some point, you you either have to do something or not do something. And not doing something is just as political as doing it. So these guys are in a nightmarish position; they're never going to win. But I think certainly, I know we don't want to be specific about Gareth, but what has happened over the last six years, and why I was really excited to try and use an, uh, an examination of the English dressing room as like a microcosm for the nation outside mm. the dressing room uh, as people living outside the country would have probably looked on with in bewilderment it's been the most chaotic and crazy six seven years in British history in probably 100 200 years sure in terms of the mania of the, the turnover of leaders so you have this yeah. guy Gareth who's been the leader for since basically a couple conveniently a couple of weeks after Brexit 2016 sure. yeah and he's stayed yeah we've gone through the, a record number of prime ministers uh, who haven't been able to implement a single vision or even arguably I would say some of them didn't, didn't even have a vision for what they sure. wanted what story they wanted to tell Gareth has told a story and almost when you think of all other parts of our public life which feels stagnant and stuck unable to find a new path the England football team is the almost the only one that has progressed, that's moved forward and, in, and improved something. So yeah. next, this year it was better than last year. Uh, that performance has improved. We've got uh, Harry Kane beat the record on goal scoring. Uh, we've done, like, you can see measurable improvement and that is so absent from the rest of our life. I don't know why we don't give him more credit for that either. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of why I was saying at the beginning that I feel like it's the... It's the realm of the playwright or the, the the writer or the people, you know, storytellers to notice those sorts of things. Because I do feel like v- a vision that, um, you know, carries anybody along or, or grabs anybody's attention is severely lacking from lots of other areas, as, as, as you suggest. Speaking of vision, then, uh, iconography, Harry Kane from The Father to the Son. Harry Kane, he's sort of, I mean, he's kind of this generation's David Beckham, but he's not really David Beckham, is he? What, what, what's the deal with Harry Kane? What is the deal with Harry Kane? I mean, I'm a big fan. I think he's, I think he's impossibly impressive 
in how he handles himself and carries himself, how he leads that team. And obviously, Jesus Christ, the amount of goals he can score. Um, but you're right. I think he is a symptom. Well, maybe he's not. It's hard to know, isn't it? Like chicken and egg. Is he a symptom of the Gareth culture or does he just align with it or does he contribute to it? But he feels that relationship feels... Harry feels like the perfect captain for Gareth, whereas maybe mm-hmm. Beckham felt like the perfect captain for Sven or, uh, you know, and I think what it, well, what it is, it, so yeah, I guess Beckham is flash and confident and beautiful. Uh, the, the stuff around him in terms of the pop star lifestyle and the pop star girlfriend and the jags and the money. And that was the, that was the age of, of wags and, and flamboyance. And that was its own thing. I'm not... And discrediting the value of that to feel sort of the glamour of that it can also be sort of seductive and important and exciting I don't think anyone would see Harry Kane as sort of glamorous mm. he's down to earth he's got his feet on the ground part of the stuff that I think he, he's been unfairly teased for and arguably like we, we he's a comedic character in the play at the beginning like people do take the piss out of his voice and his sort of monosyllabic uh, thin post-match interviews um but you can tell underneath him there's something going on like that's that's quite big, uh, even though it's quite soft. And I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating for a play, especially in, we, we were, we're in the West End at the moment and we, we came from another big theatre. These are big theatres that are normally used to sort of Shakespearean characters, warriors who lift their sword in the air and cry Harry for St George and, and big speeches. Mm-hmm. Harry for St George is very apt. Um, but like he... He's not that. So I guess as a writer and as an actor, you have to ask what about him is going to hit the back row of that auditorium because yeah. it's not going to be screaming and it's not going to be big. It's small and decent. And yeah. that excited, the challenge that excited me. It's the, it's the, I wasn't going to, but you've kind of you've led me to spoil one bit of the play right. for anyone who might not have seen it. You do, there's a wonderful bait and switch where everyone enjoys the comedic character of Harry Kane for the first half of the play. And then something happens. There's a moment when you, you, you are shown another side mm. of him. Yeah. And then nobody laughs for the rest <laughs> of the play. Yeah. And we all sit there feeling terrible about ourselves for ever having laughed in the first place. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, uh, that moment. And we have a great actor. He's called um, <laughs> Will Close. And he's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, but it's, it's, um, you know, I think we less and less. But I guess in the past, we used to imagine these these plays of being just units with nothing inside. Mm. And now, of course, that was never true. Like the ten years ago, they were all argalouts who were all out and, and and didn't care, didn't care about their country. Which, that was never true, and it, it's certainly not true that um, uh, these lads who come from you know often majority, incredibly, like in terms of the lack of social mobility in other parts of the world, these are lads who come from often socially deprived areas, working class backgrounds. Um, they've had a different life education and they're going to express themselves in a different way, but it's no more meaningful or impressive for that. Mm, okay. Have any of the, these players seen the play? I don't know. Uh, lots of players have come and seen it, mainly legacy plays. So we've had like Gary Lineker and Ian Wright, David Seaman was in a few couple of weeks ago, mm. Lee Dixon. It's been brilliant to see them come and really embrace it. And uh, I think there is a really recognisable nervousness about them coming to see themselves on, on yeah. stage. Like they really support, like Gareth, Gareth has said to me himself, he really wanted to support the mission and the endeavour, but was very honest about him him saying, I can never imagine myself sitting in that sure. theatre watching the play. Did which, you ever think about putting on, or did the company ever think about putting on a performance just for the play? That'd be great. I mean, we could do, yeah, we could go up to St George's Park and um, it's actually been, um, it's quite common now for plays, it's been recorded and will be screened into yeah. cinemas next year. Oh, that's great. So, so it lasts forever and people who can't, because there are barriers, like there's barriers to 
sport sure this barrier to theater god knows cultural and financial so yeah. people could be able to watch it online if they want so maybe they'll maybe they'll watch it if people can go though yeah this is not an advert but That's i right. would encourage them to do so and this leads me on to, to one of my final questions you already mentioned earlier it's there are very few films being delicate as to not upset anybody's feelings that include football that are are in any way good it's like historically it seems to be something which is impossible to to get a a dramatic uh, not a dramatic story out of football but to reflect that in 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 cinema or in plays or in um in art uh I'm sure like a lot of the credit for this obviously goes to you, also goes to the director, the people who made the set. You, it, it actually works in Dear England. And I'm not sure when I left the theatre, I understood why. <laughs> right. But can yeah. you talk about that and how much thought, uh, presumably yeah. on the part of the director as well, went, went into trying to make that work? Yeah, I think about that a lot because that isn't my, my really my responsibility. There was, there was, I mean, we all work together as a creative team. So, like you say, you have your director and your cast, but you've got choreographers and sound designers and lighting designers and set designers, and you also have to work out how to move the story along. And and like you say, my like proper sleepless nights actually like as we built up to the rehearsals about just the potential for cringe, like sport on stage. Like these are mm. these are actors, not athletes, or they're the pretty. God, um, um, like physical, sure. And are you ever going to get the satisfaction of, of in-game play on a stage in a Victorian theatre that you do watching it? I didn't assume so, but but I was excited by the mission and and of course the the the, the what you have in theatre as your weapon, which you don't have on on screen. Screen is very literal, whereas theatre is sort of abstract. It's we have sure. musicals, we have it's expressionistic. We can all imagine. You can just imagine that yeah, the, the, yeah, that, yeah. that was an amazing uh, tackle by. <laughs> but, um, so so we we just went really really slowly. We started off from the principle that at least we know that the penalty is theatrical, like that that that's the language of that spectacle, man, ball, goal. That feels really clear, and that how you theatricalize that felt really a good way in because it is the most theatrical thing in any sport. I think the penalty shootout, and and what really unlocked it there was a moment when we were looking at the physicality and do you do it slow motion? Do you do it expressionistic? Do you do? Um, and our great sound designer Tom, he he started playing around with just the sound, the simplicity of what it sounds like when the ball connects with a foot in a, in an arena. Um, and we played that in the theatre and the way it echoed around, it did so mm. much work for us. So actually we started to just really simplify it and to have these lads imitate like a strike, do some sound, do some lights. And it just started to work and I started to calm down. And yeah. then we have these other sort of more dancey sequence, like where they do some some moves and stuff. And so uh, training training drills are great as well because they're contained and they added like a physical life to the show. Um, so yeah, so I'm glad. I'm glad you don't think it was cringe. Like I was really no, worried it about it. Yeah. And, and I was worried about it as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I was right. attending, because yeah. just in all my experience of ever seeing anything football related on the stage, or yeah. normally it's rubbish. Yeah, and yeah. it, it wasn't. It was really good. Good. It felt believable. I felt as though I was there. There was also real tension in the in the penalty moments. Even though I know the story yeah. and I know the ending, yeah. there's something interesting about uh, watching those moments be dramatized as well. And I'm sure from a writing perspective. Uh, it would be complicated to think about how how much tension and drama to try to give those moments, given that everybody knows what happened already. It is, but like you say, it, you have to you have to embrace the tension that comes with knowing what happens. It's like the Titanic problem: the ship definitely is going to sink at the mm. end of the film. 
So you have to load into it character and stories and stakes and significance. So hopefully by the time you get to that penalty shootout, you're emotionally invested in the stakes and you now care about the characters and you're worried about what's going to happen when Paul Bakayosaka misses. You're worried for him. And so something different is happening rather than just the penalty itself. Right, I am back with Joe now. James Graham has gone. He's out of here. He's gone. He's run away. But I think we've got plenty of little things to talk about. Yeah. I think the, the thing that struck me, I, what I really liked in that interview is how you pushed back on him at one point and said it was when you were talking about, you know, results are obviously more important, but he wanted to make sure that the journey was was well respected as well and that the, the players came out of this um, with their heads held high as much as uh, they didn't win any silverware. Um you pushed back against that and said, you know, this seemed a little bit shallow. It's almost like saying, well, you know, actually winning is the most important. And, and it's almost as though all of this other stuff that we're tagging on, mm. it's nice to have it sorted out properly. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, if they'd have won, it sort of uh, it pushes it to the back burner a little bit. Which I think he is reflecting as the reality of the environment, right? That's the awkward bit of the relationship that I'm interested in. Because it's all predicated on the basis that there that there is sporting performance occurring, and it's all okay to do these nice things, uh, but it only it only really matters if if you win, which I think kind of um, which for me misses the point. That's not what James was saying. James then said, "Yeah, actually, that's what he thinks as well." But I find that like I don't know. Do you, I mean do you do you agree? What's football for? Is basically the question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think this is what's so fascinating about international football as a phenomenon because. In many respects, it's it's the, the football actually does something in a way that it doesn't in other situations, right? And I think the whole of this concept of making a play about Gareth Southgate's England is actually asking the question: What is it that football actually does? And and you know, the, right at the heart of all this, I think, is the concept of what does it mean to belong to a nation or a nation state? Yeah. Um, and I think we all have these like grand ideas of, you know, we know what it means to, to be English, but I just don't think that there's, there's nothing there, right, apart from all of these stories that we tell ourselves about what it means to be to be English or to belong to a nation. Mm. And that's what I find so fascinating about the whole concept of, of this play is that, you know, it's it's actually consciously taking the storytelling elements that attend all international football tournaments and it's it's making them into a play and almost in helping you engage in that that storytelling yourself, make you a little bit more aware of actually what does it mean to be English? Nothing more than the stories we tell about being English. Let's tell this story about the England f national football team uh, and see where that takes us. And also another point that you made outside to me moments ago that I'm now going to reappropriate as my own point is uh, the notion that if uh, one way of looking at this is that all of those nice things and the nice vibes and the stories that we can tell ourselves as a result of what's happened are in service of the results, the reality is that the results are in service of all of those things. You also made the point that, the you know, history is that. That's what that is, right? It's, it's a bit of a sort of, you know, post-grad, like a stoner <laughs> household idea to talk about. But history is nothing more than like uh, just stories that people agreed were, were real, mm. whether, whether or not they were. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that sense, the thing I found most interesting about this conversation, and I did try to ask uh, James about this, I hope it came across, is half of the time we're talking about the Gareth Southgate that, that is James's character mm -hmm. that he's written, which is v very clearly directly influenced by the real Gareth Southgate who exists and is a human being in the world. Uh, but... It will also involve like the themes that 
uh, James will find most romantic, that the themes that uh, speak to him, appeal to him most, the themes that he decides to pull out of what is a two-dimensional character on a page to try to then reflect what he thinks Gareth Southgate is, is all about. So half of that conversation is about a fictional character and then the other half of the conversation is about a real-life human being who exists in the world, who's said and done things since the play has been written, who, you know, we can then have arguments about whether, like James said, does, does, does it, is his story tied off? Can, can, you, can something stop existing at the point when you decide? Or can Gareth Southgate do and say things now that retrospectively change the view we have of it? Because Dear England is such a success... Is likely to impact like the the culture and impact the memory historically, like the general social memory of Gareth Southgate as a person. He was an England manager that had a play about about his cultural revolution written about him. That's the thing that will go down in history, right, alongside the the results. Well, yes, that was a, a point very well made, which uh, I note that I made to you before, and you have uh, <laughs> yeah, taken as your own. But yeah. then, you know. History is told by the victors. Sure. You won, so that's right. your prerogative. A point well made by you that I just told you to make <laughs> off, Mike, that's in order right. to cut in. Perfect. Yeah. We're really a symbiotic relationship, it, isn't it's it? It's wonderful. In, in anyway, many ways. yes. This is the end of the podcast now. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, people... Just one more thing I'd like to say, though. Uh, if you disagreed with anything that we said about Gareth Southgate, remember, we were talking about a character, but only if you disagreed. If you agreed, then we were talking <laughs> about the real person, yeah? Yeah, we were brilliant historiographers in yeah, yeah, this yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll be back with another fun guest next week but until then enjoy enjoy the week Bye-bye.